Welcome to Me and Mary Jane with your host, Patricia A. Patton. So hello everyone, this is Patricia A. Patton, a.k.a. Canna Boomer. Uh, Welcome to the Me and Mary Jane podcast. I'm joined today by uh, Danielle Schumacher. She is the co-founder and CEO of the THC Staffing Group. Welcome, Danielle. Hey, thanks for having me, Patricia. Always good to see you. Yeah, it's my pleasure, really. Danielle and I met... I guess it's a good year and a half ago uh, when, what was it? We actually met on the app. What was the app? I was thinking about that today. Is that really how we met? But I think so. Um, we had always, I had always heard about you for a while. Nice. I had heard about you also. And it was weird because there was a whole crew from the Oakland Bay area on Clubhouse. And I was sort of hanging out in that group. And that's why I was like in the background, looking around, trying to listen and see, because, um, you know, you guys are OGs. And I was trying to learn (laughs) from all of you. So stuck at home. So Clubhouse just in time. And then like, that was such a short phase of my COVID life, but um, fruitful. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Well, as the um, co-founder with Shailene Title of the THC Staffing Group, I was thinking about it earlier and I was looking at Frontier Data's uh, information. They said that $128.8 billion additional dollars of tax revenue and $1.63 million legal cannabis jobs will be created by 2025. So if that can be counted on as truth, it looks like the THC staffing group is in a sweet spot for the future. When you created that, were you anticipating this kind of growth in this industry or were you motivated by something else? Yeah, interesting. So New Frontier Data said a million something jobs by yeah, 2023 legal can legal cannabis jobs by 2025 interesting yeah so we uh Shaleen and I had been thinking and talking about that that there will it there will be a lot of jobs it will be a massive job creation industry um and our primary concern about that was that that's not necessarily going to be good jobs (laughs) Um, we we could see that the way that things were starting to go with the industry that we didn't really like and that was out of line with why we originally got involved in cannabis work Um, but also that um, you know to your question of you know how does that shape why we started THC staffing and what we do um, we knew there would be a lot of staffing companies, um, a lot of cannabis specific recruiters. Um, and we were pretty sure that that 
kind of situation with such a huge cannabis economy. Essentially, right. it's an entire economy. Um, and, and to be on the, in the beginning part of that, um, job creation is a really volatile time. And we knew most of the jobs were already going to white men and most, and the vast majority of the ownership, um, you know, vast majority of the plant touching licenses in the country are still white owned. Um, although that's starting to shift, but that's, if you look at, you know, the, the market share that the white owned companies have, such as the biggest MSOs and everything, it's going to be run by white people and mostly employing white people, unless we do something about that. Mm -hmm. And this was around 2010 um, that we, Shalene and I really realized, and mostly because Shalene had uh, some of the work she was doing at that time, working on the legalization campaign in Colorado, um, doing different kinds of work, because she's a lawyer and an, uh, actually an accountant previously. Um, so just to know that we, not only that we needed to do something to influence how the industry took shape, um, specifically who gets hired. Right. Um, and, and, and knowing that we could actually have an influence on that because of the work we'd been doing for 10 years at that point. So, or almost 10 years. Uh, by the time we started THC staffing in 2014, we had been working full-time on cannabis for 10 years, or I had, and Shalene had been also involved in cannabis, but also going through school to become an accountant and then a lawyer. So um, just combining our um, experience and figuring out specific ways we can um, influence um, that, that whole process of if you're hired today into the industry, as we talk about a lot, Patricia, mostly entry-level jobs are what's available. Um, and if you're speaking specifically about black, brown and indigenous people, um, even though people of color, that's total generalization, but um, you know, you could look specifically at black women are the most educated demographic in the country. Um, so you would think, okay, if you're talking about creating a, you know, building a diverse team in any company or cannabis company that from, from my perspective, even back in 2010 um, or even further back than that, you know, when I was still a college student, I just, it's always made sense to me in my adult life. It's made sense that, oh yeah, we could totally build a diverse team. Like, you know, I've helped staff restaurants um, and, and different kinds of small businesses as I was, you know, working in my teens and twenties. And what's so hard about hiring diverse groups of people, like or creating a gr diverse group of people in your company? It really shouldn't be that hard. But clearly, <laughs> um, that's not it what it's like. Yeah, it feels like it's a conundrum. It's like people talk about it as though it's the inside of a 787 or something, you know, like, how can we do this? It's going to take years to do. Why? It's impossible or too stressful to figure out how to do it. Um, and hiring in general, right? Like add to that in general, when, when you're, in a, within a company or even in the licensing phase and having to try to plan out, okay, what if we get a license, how are we going to run this? The level of avoidance <laughs> of anything related to HR, you know, like all kinds of managers, owners just seem to be so stressed out about it or um, 
avoiding it for different reasons. And to your point that it's going to be so labor intensive and uh, expensive and that also that we can't afford staff, like all of that kind of mentality. I mean, obviously it's coming from different places and always looks different. Like every company I work with, it, it's a different set of reasons of why, like why are they struggling with it? How did it get to this point where they're in that position of power, but don't know where to start? Is right. for right. writing a job description or, you know, well, these are the people who applied. And um, so we're just going to hire this person who seems like obviously a good fit. And we're just going to keep it moving instead of like, well, what about the 50 other candidates? Or, you know, why don't you put the word out a little further so that you're not just drawing from your immediate like country club network or whatever it is? Right, right. <laughs> I'm always amazed when I look at these super profound comments about society on LinkedIn or something with all these people who are extremely um, well-versed and uh, experienced and woke. And um, I know nobody uses that word anymore, but the point I'm trying to make is then you look at their team and there's no one on the team. Like everybody looks exactly like mm. each other. And these are people who um, talk the talk. Um, you know, they, they talk the talk about what and how to change society. Okay, before we just take off all the yeah, way yeah. with the PhD, <laughs> let's take a moment to talk briefly about how it is that you come to know all of this. Like, how did you get started with your activism in California you know, in your college years, like how do you get to 2010 and already have knowledge and experience and thought about what the world would look like in 2020? Yeah, um, so one thing I will say um, that predated my specific interest in cannabis policy or um, legalization was uh, I was, fortunate to go to a math and science boarding school for high school. So in high school, I was in a residential math and science school that had um, all kinds of clubs, all kinds of student activities. It was a, um, it was a research institution. It was part of the state of Illinois, Illinois Math and Science Academy. So there was um, a chapter of Amnesty International there. Uh. And I had no idea what it was, but when I read through the description of all the clubs, I was like, oh, I want to do that. Like, that is what I want to learn about. I want to understand human rights. I know that there's all kinds of stuff that adults haven't told us. And, you know, I just, my instinct was follow that path, follow where that leads me. So um, I got really involved in Amnesty International, which, you know, at that time was primarily, especially for a high school chapter, um, it was primarily letter writing, writing letters to political prisoners. Um, that just opened up a completely new way of thinking for me, like a whole world that I didn't really know about. Um, so from there, um, then right away in freshman year of college at University of Illinois, um, I got involved in the Amnesty chapter. And then through the Amnesty chapter, one thing led to another of like ACLU and um, just kind of shopping around in college freshman year of like, what does, and, and what does this mean for my, what's my major? 
is going to be and what I want to do um, for a career path. So that was a big piece of it. And what that, year is this? What year is it? Um, so in high, the high school, that was the late 90s. And then um, college uh, was 2000, 2000 to 2004. Okay. Um, so right away, I would say, you know, um, just followed that path and, and wasn't sure what it was, but it led pretty quickly to, um, you know, since I would say 2002, I've identified as a prison abolitionist, but I, I knew that like, I was really, I'm still a student of that. I only, I feel like now I'm getting to a point where I'm starting to really see what that is and what that means for what, what more I could be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I was tech, specifically how I got into cannabis was I was sitting at a campus ACLU meeting um, because I had heard the guest speaker was about cannabis and I was intrigued and it took a historical perspective. It was a slideshow, um, overhead projector presentation and it was political cartoons from the early 1900s about um, you know all the like Hearst and all the propaganda right. kind of building up to when cannabis be- was made illegal. So I got really hooked at that point. And it was, um, the speaker was Brian Brickner from the Illinois chapter of Normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did emphasize towards the end, like the reason he was on campus was to um, start building support to have chapters of um different kinds of student organizations in Illinois that could help uh, legalize in Illinois. And that's essentially what we did. Um, I got, I went up to him after the meeting. I said, I'm in student government. Um, I know how to start a club. I know how to get student funding, like club funding. Um, And this, I'm going to do this. (laughs) And then I went home and I lived with Shaleen, um, title who was Shalene Aggie at that time and I told her oh this is what I I'm gonna do this and I need a second person to form the club with me and um can you can you be the treasurer um and so that was 2002 I want to say um so we I started the process immediately of forming that but I know that there was a little bit of a like organizational process um so we we ended up starting a uh, the club with students for sensible drug policy we decided to go be a chapter of of that group that we were one of the early chapters of SSDP mm-hmm. um so at that time and then a lot of the things we did while we were still in in college um it was a much smaller circle of people who were involved in in legalization work and and in a position of privilege to be able to speak publicly like I was quoted in the student newspaper and then I was quoted in the local paper and it just kind of escalated from there because there weren't that many sources um, you know for the media when the media did rarely <laughs> cover marijuana reform efforts Um, Even in the early 2000s, it was still not a lot of coverage. It was usually negative coverage. Mm -hmm. Um, And to find, you know, there was just not a lot of voices, I would say. Um, Although not to say that, like, I was one of the first legalization activists or anything like that. Um, But I think it was a point in time, especially as a young person um, and a woman. um, Because when we did start going to conferences, even like Drug Policy Alliance, um, was still really white at that time when you would go to the conferences. Um, of course, normal was all literally all white men in most of the rooms. And I was 
felt unsafe, <laughs> literally. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot of the events that I went to in those first few years. Um, so yeah, and then from there, um, just to kind of fast forward the story a little bit, um, uh, after college, um, through working with Illinois Normal um, and going to conferences, I ended up getting recruited um, to work uh, in California for Berkeley Patients Group. Um, they had a nonprofit that they were starting at that time um, called Cannabis Action Network. Um, and, and through relationships, I would say networking and, and right place at the right time, I was one of the only, like I said, one of the only women in a lot of times or a few, one of the few women in the room um, and also hardworking. I mean, I think, yes, it was a privilege for me to be able to do this work, all the work I've done in cannabis, but you really got me thinking, Patricia, like, what, why do I work in staffing? And um, a lot of the things I do, like, how did I get here? There is a component of like, I've been doing a lot of work <laughs> for this whole 20 years, but also working in restaurants and babysitting and house sitting and pet sitting, like anything I can do to be supporting myself all these years. But Primarily, yes, I've been working in cannabis, but a lot of other kinds of experiences as well. But, um, you know, just to kind of wrap up as far as some of my um, work experience after I got recruited out to Berkeley and worked with um, Cannabis Action Network um, and worked at the dispensary there. Um, from there, I helped uh, create the curriculum and um, uh worked with the all the instructors at uh, Oaksterdam University. So in the beginning of um, Oaksterdam, that was in 2006. <laughs> um, from there, I mean, it, again, relationships, um, just building different kinds of experience over time because uh, being able to see cultivation centers and dispensaries, all of the different kinds of cannabis businesses I've been able to see firsthand or in some cases work for, I've I love working with the plants and and learning different. Although I'm, I would never say I'm like well versed in cultivation, but um, even sometimes just getting that overview of experiences, and then um, of course Bay Area. I mean, just a hub of not only cannabis but radical political thought and culture. So, so when when you were recruited to work in the West, had you graduated from college? Yes, mm -hmm. that was uh, right after I graduated. So in 2004. So that's when you, because I remember one of the early stories, because I could never understand, how does she know all this about so many aspects? Mm. Of, you know, you knew about Wokesterdam, you, you knew about the medical professionals who have worked in the early years in the industry, you know? I mean, then to even know, okay, what are all the pieces inside a grow that mm. one would need? Because it took me a while to figure out because I don't have any direct experience with mm. that to yeah. know all the pieces or for example, why compliance would have to be on top of all of that, even though there were a thousand different pieces inside, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And how does the supply chain work and some of that you really can only learn over time as things unfold as things happen and you it, like say you're just trying to learn through researching it's going to take a while because you have to follow the news you have to right. research the companies you have to go to events to try to like 
meet people and get tours. And I would say a big piece of my experience, I have to say I worked, I still work um, in some capacity for Dr. Frank Lucido. And uh, he was a, one of the first cannabis doctors. I um, worked at his office for 10 years in Berkeley um, sometimes only working part-time there and able to be working in some other situation. Um, I worked for cannabis lawyers and, um, Chris Conrad, who's an expert witness. He was the first officially registered cannabis expert witness in the country. So that was in California. Um, so getting to work closely with him on some of his cases and then the doctor's office, um, was really a cross-section of leaders in the industry and of course i won't name any of them but many of them have spoken publicly about being a patient of dr lucido and also uh, maria mangini um, who's a nurse pra uh, family nurse practitioner and phd who worked with uh, him for many years and i'm still very close with her and so i would say i learned so much from working for frank um, dr lucido um, and also Maria Mangini um, was one of my most important mentors. And although she didn't work directly in cannabis, but um, a combination of all that experience that like for 10 years, I was the office manager um, for many of the cannabis business owners and um, activists um, and really people from around the country. It wasn't just California patients. Sure. sure. They had patients and and events and relationships with people from around the country. So I have to give credit to that experience. And, and that was hard work too, running a doctor's office is yeah, pretty yeah, yeah. complicated and not easy, but um, I am very grateful for all of that because it's, uh, yeah, at this point, I, I think that I have a really good handle on, you know, an overview of the industry and then also like specific sectors as well. But I, I know I can see how that could be really difficult for people who don't have firsthand experience in it to be able to grasp a lot of these things that I just know and understand as like the basic ways that the industry has been built and functions. I mean, I'm not a well-versed business person. I don't speak with data. I don't um, understand like the process of taking an investor but that's not, those are not my lanes, you know, <laughs> I'm more, especially because I didn't even seek this out as a business venture. It, it just turned into that out of necessity as we, Shalene and I realized, you know, we can only make so much influence as activists, mm -hmm. um, and unless we're going to, which she has now worked within the government. She's been able to take a different path than me through her, um, just her skill set and how she is. Um, but yeah, you, it's, it's a lot. And um, I think some of it really, you can only learn over time. So people who, you know, have been in the industry five years, that is a long time, but also like it takes another five or 10 years to be able to see things really uh, evolve, right. Or devolve <laughs> in some cases. One of, the, one, of the, one of the things I remember in the early conversation that I had with you that I found super interesting uh, and I didn't really know what you meant, but I knew it was important to where you were going when you talked about THC staffing and you talked about you didn't take on any client. Like I was under the impression that recruiters took anybody they could and then tried to like sell them to the highest bidder, you know? 
you came with a different perspective on how your company was going to work. It's like, you don't even take clients on. So what was that about? Because <laughs> that kind of discernment was a change in my understanding about how a person as an individual could make a difference. Like you didn't have to really sell to the highest bidder. You know, you didn't have to, um, you don't have to sell yourself. Like you can do business. You may not make the most money, but. Yeah. Yeah, So, and that goes back to one of your first questions about, you know, the volume of jobs, right? So, Right. right. The, and this has shifted. So, um, recently I would say there's been a shift to like, there, there is now a plethora of candidates for cannabis jobs there because enough people live in places where it's legally okay for them to pursue employment in cannabis. Right. So there's a lot more people trying to work in cannabis. Um, and there are more jobs now than there were in 2014 when we first started doing this officially. Um, but the volume, like more jobs doesn't necessarily mean like better. Right. And they're definitely not good jobs. There are some that are good, would be a good job for somebody, but overall, yeah, I'm more concerned or more interested in the good, the, the good work environments, like the truly safe and inclusive work environments. I know there's few and far between, but you know, companies that are working towards doing better and, and creating a safe as possible space um, and diverse as possible team, right? Um, so yeah, so our approach, I guess you would, that means we're disruptors, right? That we yeah. are a staffing company, we're known as recruiters by a lot of people, but I'm really not a recruiter in that headhunter sense that most people know I would say people either there's a lot of people who just don't really know what a recruiter does they don't have a frame of reference and then there's like people like you who your perception of it is this really cutthroat um numbers game mm-hmm. um for sure there is a lot of that and there's Shalene and I knew there was going to be a lot of cannabis recruiters like that who were going to use candidates in the process of just really going for the commission. The recruiter just usually is only interested in how can I get that commission? That means I have to basically place white guys. Right. Vast majority of the time, recruiters are, they don't care (laughs) about diversity. They want to place whoever's going to do best in the interview process and get that job so that they can get their cut, right? So I've studied recruiting enough to know what it is to know that I'm, that's not our approach. (laughs) Um, Although we have to get paid, we have to make, you know, we have to get paid for some of our work, obviously, to be able to continue to do it. Um, So how do we, how do we get to this point and how do we even set it up of how do we choose who we work with? Um, A lot of it goes back to word of mouth and the relationships. We don't do a lot of paid advertising. Really, we haven't done any very little, maybe just in the beginning, we did some paid advertising, some paid sponsorships. And I would like to be able to have enough um, income for the business that I can sponsor and support groups, you know, advocacy groups and different um, small, small businesses that I want to be able to support. But primarily, our services have been tailored for two things. One, 
what do our what do the companies need the companies that we want to work with what do they need help with that i can help them with that's a pretty wide range um, but it all falls under the umbrella of either helping them find candidates helping them know how to choose like how to interview and choose between the candidates um and and there's a lot that goes into that you know all the way through like onboarding like just setting everything up um to be smooth and respectful <laughs> for the candidates and the company um so that goes back to like what kinds of companies would i be interested in doing that with i mean we've especially in the first couple of years of THC staffing, we definitely worked with, we dabbled with working with some MSOs. Um, we wanted to give them a chance, you know, we wanted to get, see if we could get some uh, basically black and brown candidates into positions of authority and high salaries in the MSOs as soon as possible. Um, or even entry level, to be honest, you know, if you think 10 years ago or five years ago, you want to, it is, it does make sense to take entry level positions. If you have no cannabis experience and it's going to be a good enough situation, maybe with some benefits, you can get the experience to move up. Mm -hmm. But I'm really jaded now. Like most of the MSOs don't work like that. Right. But in small companies, it, it still works like that, where if, if I can help recruit um, and help get people hired into a small company, even if it's entry level, um, I know the owners, you know, that's what this all comes down to. Most of the companies I work with, I know the owners in some way um, and or I know the managers. If it's a big enough company where there's the owners and then there's the like managers who are going to actually be interviewing and supervising my candidates, I have to have some level of familiarity to really know um, what they're going to, what it's going to be like to work for them. I see. Um, and then how do you, you know, what is... How, do, how much does that cost? How do you structure your services is like a whole nother podcast episode, but. Are there enough companies around the country for TAC staffing group to do that at this point? Like for it to, as a business, you know. As a business model. Yeah. I would say, yes, there is a demand. There's enough companies that, genuinely care about DEI work in all the different ways that that plays out. <laughs> um, but can they afford, can they afford these kind of borderline luxury services? Even if you, even if the cost is low, right? Like even if I charge a low hourly rate, um, yeah, what does, it's a, it's a project, it's project work. So it's like, it's hard to do to make a difference in just a few hours. So it is, it is a budget item, you know, but it's not as expensive as people think. Um, but what are you getting for that? You know, like there's not, I, I think most of the staffing companies um, don't, the people working in those companies and delivering the services don't have a lot of firsthand experience in cannabis. So is it really worth it? But it's not just about cannabis experience. It's like knowing how to, do diversity recruiting. That is not something that's easy to teach. I think you can learn it. Like I've definitely continued to learn and refine it. I didn't just know how to do this in 2014, but um, it's a culmination of experience, right? So um, to your question about, you know, the demand for this right now, I mean, the recruiting piece, like that traditional kind of headhunter 
yes, there's mm-hmm. still a lot of that going on. New mm-hmm. recruiter, new recruiting companies continue to pop up, but not as much. I, I definitely noticed there was a flurry of all these different kinds of cannabis recruiting companies. And now they've, it's leveled out a little bit. I don't see so many trying to like be a big deal recruiting company because they're figuring out that you really can't make money doing that for many reasons. Um, and these big recruiting companies have a bunch of investors, like they have capital. Their approach is get a bunch of capital, hire a bunch of people around the country, and we're going to make this work and turn a profit. I don't see that panning out for most of them. I'm not, I'm not speaking to any specific examples. I don't have any like documentation. I just have been watching it unfold <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because people often expect that I have investors and no, this is self-funded and it's literally me at this point. <laughs> So it's not. What's interesting about that is one of the things when I I was just going to see how far down on the Google search (laughs) you came, you know, just to see how many people there were above you, who came in first or and what stories were. I mean, I know a lot of that says more about how how much staff they have to do search engine optimization, you know, for where they show up on the page. One of the things that I noticed was that there are now cannabis recruiting platforms. Yes. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, and this was supposed to guarantee, you know, a certain amount of compliance in companies. That's the sales piece that recruiting firms are using. And I was like, I'm sure she's not using that. (laughs) You know, because what you do does really require kind of a hands-on approach. I mean, you said, I don't really work with companies. I mean, for the most part, I work with companies where I know the owner or I know the manager, you know, so then you, you know the environment. Yeah. You know? Yeah, right. So I'm not quick to just start working for some random company I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll try. I want, I need to get to know them a little bit in the process. So, um, you know, like I don't ask them to sign my contract yeah. right away because I, I want to get to know, do I even want to, send them my contract do I even want to work with them you know so but yeah to your yeah definitely there's it's the a lot of the recruiting companies have adapted to be a platform of some sort using technology Mm -hmm. Um, and I think some of that is definitely an adaptation of like oh okay we're not gonna be able to get cannabis companies to pay a large commission like an executive placement firm um but we can get them to subscribe like at this monthly rate for this platform or whatever it is. There's so many different forms that can take. And yeah, I don't, I don't do that obviously, but um, I can see why that can be helpful. For instance, a company I haven't heard of contacted me recently and said they need to hire 40 temp to hire people for their cultivation centers. Like now, you know, that's a real demand. Like I get it. Right quote unquote real that they literally are trying to hire 40 people right now and they are gonna legally I guess get away with being able to hire temp to hire you know like so the other thing is location like jurisdiction like Colorado you can hire temp workers so there's a company like hemp temps Mm -hmm. or these Colorado specific staffing agencies make sense because the law there allows for the companies to hire temp workers, um, 
but there's not that many places that allow that. And then where it is allowed, I, that doesn't mean that that's the, what I would say is the best way to do it. <laughs> Although, you know, for harvesting makes sense, you seasonal work, right? But a seasonal worker doesn't have to be like a temp contractor that you can treat them like a real employee. <laughs> right. Gosh, I never even thought about that. There are, you know, particular laws that govern that. So, okay, we're coming up on that 30 minutes. And so wow. we're going to take a break Okay. Uh, for um, a little advertising from a sponsor. And then we will come back. Do you need a community to help grow your business? If so, consider the Canvas Business Alliance as your new best friend in the ancillary cannabis space. Reach us at CannabisBusinessAlliances.com. We look forward to you joining our community. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us today. Pass the word. Share the love. Like, subscribe, tell a friend. Can't wait to talk to you again on the next episode. Thank you.